With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Thanks for listening and being a part of The Chris Smith Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Yes, I'll get to John Ruddick very shortly, and we'll also talk a little bit more about Gaza, Israel, and the Middle East with Shane Healy, the ADF former intelligence officer. And we'll also touch on terrorism today with issues about uh, how much can we trust those who are emerging from prison after serving time for terrorist-related charges. Plenty coming up in the program. Do not go anywhere. Um, I do want to refer to the chat box on tntradio.live from Annie, who's written a few messages on the chat box. Annie says, unfortunately, Chris, some of these psychologists are uneducated about the gender agenda also and believe kids should be able to start the process towards transgendering. It's hard for parents to know who to trust these days. I can understand that and appreciate that. Parents absolutely need to research both sides of the fence in this issue. Um, There is big money, she writes, in the transgender wheel. Well, we're now getting people de-transitioning or de-transitioning and coming back to the clinics that were very, very quick to allow them to transition to another gender and finding out exactly why it happened and taking them to court. There are legal processes going on right now that will see a lot of doctors and clinics in a great deal of trouble. And I just think that until someone turns 18 years of age, when they can make their own adult decision, an adult decision, not a teenage decision, you shouldn't be able to use gender blocks or any kind of surgery in particular to make those alterations. Um, One here from Chris. Chris said, we should be talking about the impending globalist conscription of UK young men. That's interesting. That came up around about 24 hours ago now, the idea that there could be conscription in the UK, because um, there were certain ministers talking very, very hawkishly about what would be required to take on Russia. Well, I can tell you, as late of about, let me see, four hours ago, a report that has turned up in the UK Telegraph says, Downing Street has been forced to rule out conscription after the head of the army warned that British civilians would need to fight Russia in a future war. General Sir Patrick Sanders said the UK needed a military that could not only expand rapidly, but also train and equip a citizen army in a speech first reported by the UK Telegraph. In his address to the International Armoured Vehicles Conference in Twickenham, On Wednesday, General Sir Patrick stressed that the Army, which is predicted to have just 72,500 fully trained soldiers by 2025, would not be big enough to fight an all-out war with Russia, even if it numbered 120,000. Defence sources previously told The Telegraph that General Sir Patrick wants there to be a shift in the mindset of British men and women in which they think like troops and are mentally prepared for possible war with China. Well, on Wednesday, the Prime Minister's official spokesman said Downing Street did not agree with Sir Patrick's views. Asked about the possibility of conscription, he said, the British military has a proud position of being a voluntary force. As I say, there's no plan for conscription. But Chris, you make a very good point. This can clearly be out of control. That can clearly be... uh, 
a digression uh, statement that could see us go down that path. Maybe, maybe not in the UK, but maybe in other countries. Let's not write it off and let's watch that space very, very carefully. I'm with you. But that was the latest from Downing Street saying they do not intend to go down the path of conscription. And very briefly, um, this has come from a news source called Lever News, and it pertains to the 737 MAX planes. This is Boeing's troubled 737 fleet. And I just wanted to tell you, um, it it's in reference to a series of complaints that have been made. Over the last three years, according to Lever News, operators of Boeing's troubled 737 MAX planes have filed more than 1,800 service difficulty reports. Um, that's more than one per day, warning government regulators about safety problems with the aircraft since the fleet was allowed to resume flying after two fatal crashes. But roughly 150 of the reports came from Alaska Airlines, the operator of a 737 MAX plane that suffered a mid-air cabin breach over Portland, Oregon earlier this month. So between December 2020 and September 2023, Alaska Airlines filed more than 1,230 reports related to the 53 Boeing 737 MAX planes that it has in its fleet. That's astonishing. That's astonishing. Um, there's some safety aspects of that aircraft that need closer attention by aviation officials around the world. And if I knew I was travelling in a one of those 737 aircraft, I'd be thinking about rearranging my schedule. This is Chris Smith on TNT. Delivering the facts. Source I can trust. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, John Ruddick is an MLC, which is basically a member of the Legislative Council in the Parliament of New South Wales. He's the leader, too, of the New South Wales Libertarian Party. He is a regular on this program. He gets a lot of great feedback from you, our listeners and viewers, and we do appreciate that. He's on the line right now. John Ruddick, welcome back to TNT. Happy Australia Day, Chris, and good to be here on a Thursday. Yes, happy Australia Day for tomorrow for those who don't know. Boy, oh boy, hasn't there been some controversy leading up to this one? And I noticed that Woolworths have put out full-page advertisements yesterday, gone and done the media run and spoken to radio and television because obviously it is hurting their back pocket what they had to say and the rearguard action against it. Well, I'm very proud of the uh, of the backlash. I'm very proud that people aren't just talking about it. They're not going to Woolies. I have not been to Woolies since this started. Mm. I don't. I, I, I'm hoping to never go again until they start stocking Australia Day stuff. This was a political decision. This was not a commercial decision. They have misled the public about that. They said, "Oh, the stuff wasn't selling." Well, I. I when people go to Coles, they, they they take photos. They say the Australia State Australia Day stuff sells out so quickly. Yes. So, uh, now this was because of the. I think we discussed it last week. It's because the Woolworths in two thousand and twenty one set up an Aboriginal uh, an advisory council, and they've obviously come out and said, "Oh no no no, most Aborigines love Australia Day." Yeah. Okay, it's it's just just people getting these you know perks. Correct. All right. Now let's start internationally. Is Donald Trump unassailable from here? Well, look, he has been basically since 2000. That's the bottom line. They've done a million polls. He's always been in front by a mile. You know, look, a year ago, Ron DeSantis was looking like he might be 15 points behind Trump. He was looking pretty good. But look, 
as soon as they start, uh, you know, trying to arrest him and putting all these charges on him, Trump's polls just went through the roof. Look, have you noticed, Chris, Trump's lost weight. Trump's looking good. He's looking fit. He's in a very good mood. And I actually hope, silly Nikki, I hope she doesn't, I hope she doesn't drop out for a while. Now, she's going to lose every single primary there is. Mm. All the all the worst people in the Republican Party, the Bushes, the Cheneys, the Romneys, all the, uh, the, the, the neoconservative warmongers, they're funneling money into Nikki. And they think that if the campaign keeps going, well, Nikki will be able to take a few swipes at Trump and hurt him. But the reality is, I hope she contests all 50 states, Chris, because it'll just be every few days, Trump's won again. Trump's won again. And Trump could get up and give a speech in Indiana, in Massachusetts, all over the place. He says, yep, we've won again, we've won again. Look, I think she'll pop I think she'll drop out before South Carolina. But yes, Trump's unstoppable. I think he's also unstoppable to beat Biden. I think I just think it's in. Yeah, Biden will be eighty six, Chris, if he gets reelected. Okay, yeah. he's already a mess. He's a mental and physical mess now, right? Yeah. And, a, yeah. and he said, and Kamala's going to be his VP. So if something tragic did happen to President Biden in his second term, Kamala's the president. And all I can say at that point, Chris, is God help us all. Yes, we've learned too much about Kamala. All right, former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison is teaming up with the former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, a champion, of course, of the military-industrial complex. Uh, Morrison is leaving Parliament to join Pompeo's consultancy. Put the pieces together for us, John. Well, of course, the guy that, uh, you know, has had no experience, okay, outside of politics, no experience with the defence sector, uh, and he's been desperately wanting to get out of Parliament since he lost. Now, you know, I, you know, I wish him all the best, you know. I mean, and, and, and it, it's a pity it's taken him this long. It must be somewhat embarrassing to one day go from being the Prime Minister of the great nation Australia, and then you're a humble backbencher and a little bit disgraced with all the silly multiple ministries thing, which was just bizarre. Mm. So he's wanted to get out, and I, I felt sorry for him that he couldn't find a job. Well, now he's found a job. And who's? I thought when I heard he's got a job, Chris, I thought, well, this will be with one of his Christian organisations. I think he Yeah, is, same here. I thought he's a sincere, you know, churchgoer and everything, and good on him for that. Uh, but no, 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 lo and behold, where, where is he? he announced it on Monday. Then we didn't find out till the next day who's given him the job. And who's given him the job? The neoconservative military-industrial complex, Mike Pompeo, who says, you know, whenever there's a problem in the world, there's only one solution. America's got to drop as many bombs on them as possible. <laughs> now, now, it's not a good thing to have a very, very big industry, probably the biggest industry in the world, the arms industry. It is not good to have this industry, which is so commercially incentivized for war. Mm. Now, I'm not a pacifist. Sometimes, you know, Adolf Hitler, if we didn't step in, he would have defeated Russia. He probably would have gone into the Middle East. He probably would have gone into Africa. He would have been unstoppable. We'd all be speaking German now. The world would be a very different, less free place. So I'm not a pacifist. But I do believe in most cases, there are better alternatives to war. And, 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 but Mike Pompeo and the boys, you know, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and everybody, they're making trillion, billions and billions of dollars. And who gave them about half a trillion dollars? Stupid Scott Morrison on these on these subs, which are not designed to defend Australia. It's part of America's sort of gearing up for war on China. Okay, so, you know, thanks, Scott Morrison. You know, half a trillion dollars, now we'll give you a nice job. Yeah. I, um, I like how you put the pieces together and it's not so far-fetched. Now, can I talk about Sweden, which um, 
I think it's fair to say took a minimalist approach to combating COVID and they fared fairly well. They're starting to now undo their net zero and their renewable policies. This is a sign of common sense and pragmatism because at the end of the day, how much poorer do these nations want to be for no benefit whatsoever? Well, I've grown, I've spent my life arguing with left-wingers and they've always said, oh, well, we don't believe in communism, but look at Sweden, you know, high taxes, high regulation and happy, happy society. Okay. And and they're they saying, look, it, it is democratic socialism. And they, they always said Sweden, not the hard left, but yeah, the sort of cent, centre-left people, they said Sweden is the ideal. Now, then what happened about uh, 10 years ago, and they've had all these left-wing governments, okay, about 10 years ago, the Swedish government said, oh, we, we will accept all these Middle Eastern refugees because they're fleeing persecution and, yeah, we're a kind country. We'll let them all in. Now, they weren't refugees. They were like 90% of them were young men in their 20s yeah. who were on the losing side in the Syrian war. Yeah. That's, they were warriors who lost, okay? And then Sweden says, oh, come and live with us. You know, we'll welcome you. We're kind people, okay? Well, that has been a disaster. Mm. The crime and the bombs. There are bombs going off in Sweden. You don't see that on the Channel 9 News or in the Sydney Morning Herald or the ABC. Bombs are frequently going off in Sweden. Now, what's that done? It's woken most Swedes up. And this country, which has been held up as the perfect left-wing utopia, has voted for a pretty right-wing government, okay? Mm. And, and, and now now, now they're, they're waking up about the... Um, the global boiling BS. Mm. Okay, they're, they're the first country really in the world to reverse it. Now, on COVID, Sweden really went out there early on. They say, look, we recommend that you stay at home, but we're not going to enforce it. We're not going to have the police and the military on the street to say you can't leave your home. Look, there is a bad virus out there. Everyone knows that. There is a bad virus. In the early days, it was a bad virus. It's not now. These things peter out, of course. Yeah, uh, and so Sweden said, and we, Sweden said, we think you should take vaccines, but we're not going to force you to do it. Okay, they said we think you should wear masks, and, and a lot of people did. Most people probably did, but the government didn't wasn't coming around like the SS in Australia saying, mm. you know, oh, you got to wear your stupid mask. Now the king, it was tough what that government did in Sweden. The king of Sweden came out and attacked his own government. Now, that's not often in a constitutional monarchy. The king cried. He said, oh, we've been so cruel on COVID. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, this is why we want king, <laughs> this is why we want kings to shut up about politics. It's not their job. And then I'll, I'll tell you what, Chris, one of the things I want to talk to you about shortly is King Charles. Okay, I've got, I've got, I've got some big news coming up, and I'll break it on this show. What, today? No, 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 no. I'll, 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 no give me a little bit. But Oh, uh, good, good. Maybe next week. Let's see. But it's all right. Okay, I've got to take a quick break. Don't hold that thought. Hold that thought. We'll be back in just a short moment with John Ruddick and more, including the destruction of a colonial statue in Melbourne that has angered an entire country. We'll do that right after the break on TNT. TNT's Abby Roberts. So this is the headline in The Guardian. Pleasure of sex is a gift from God, but avoid porn. Pope advises. What is it with religious people and sex? Isn't there anything else that's 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 more important to worry about? And this is what uh, this is what Pope Francis uh, say. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it in an Italian accent just to be even more offensive. Sexual pleasure is a gift from God, but Catholics must avoid pornography. Pope Francis has said. The pontiff 
Oh, I'll tell you what, though. He was all for giving people lots of pricks during 2021. Bloody hell. MRNA's fine, but just not porn. Abby Roberts on TNT. Affordable housing. We can build that. Sustainable housing. We can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular, we can build that. We don't rock, rock. we talk. talk. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. I've got John Ruddick, MLC, on the line with me right now. John, at 3 a.m. today, vandals in inner city Melbourne got an angle grinder and destroyed a Captain James Cook statue. They cut him off at the feet. Now, someone obviously doesn't like Australia Day because they've done it on the eve of our National Day. They don't like anything related to Cook and our colonial past, despite the fact that the country without the English would be um, very primitive, very tribal, certainly not modern, not even up to the standard of third world. So I don't know what kind of environment or community these people want to live in, maybe they do want to go back to those primitive times. What's the answer, John? Well, look, uh, you know, Europeans had known Australia was here for two or 300 years before Captain Cook came along. The Portuguese were the first in this part of the world, then the yeah. Spanish, the Dutch. Now all And, and, and the French. Up, the French, yes, absolutely. Now they had explored and had set up a ton of trading bases in what we now call Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, and all that stuff. And there was a ton of trade going back between Europe and Southeast Asia. Now, they bumped into Australia on many, many occasions. They bumped into Western Australia, the Kimberley, the Northern Territory, and the Gulf of Carpentaria, and they just thought, well, this place is big, but it's a mess. Like, look, it's barren. It's dry, it's barren, there's no rivers, there's no trading opportunity. So they just ignored it. They thought the whole thing was just this big, big island desert. Yeah. And Captain Cook comes out. And yeah, Captain Cook is an extremely impressive person. The British, the British Navy was all about sort of like uh aristocrats and the upper mm. class. Mm. Captain Cook was a little was was a a, a poor little peasant's son yeah. who just through brilliance and hard work rose up to become one of the greatest figures in the British Navy. Now, he explored the world's biggest geographic uh, feature, which is the Pacific Ocean. It's the biggest ocean in the mile, by a mile. He explored it three times. On only one occasion did he come to Australia. He actually liked New Zealand a lot more Australia because New Zealand looks like England. And, and, and he was going around all the islands and Hawaii and he went up to Alaska, you know, everywhere. Uh, but, he, but what he did do is he told the world, look, 
there is on the east coast of Australia this 4,000 kilometer fertile strip, you know, and he says, look, there's rivers, there's lots of people, uh, and a good opportunity for farming and everything. So, Captain Cook, but your point is entirely correct. If Captain Cook had not come here, if the Spanish or the Portuguese or the French or other people or the Japanese, they would have come down a bit later on. If that it was lucky that the British found this quite late, okay, yeah. because yeah. someone else would have come here and look, it was it were different times, but the British were easily the most civilized and the most humane. Yeah. And, and Captain Cook was very nice to the Aborigines. Look, he had a little bit to do with them in Botany Bay and up in Queensland. He was very interested in them. He wasn't hard, but he wasn't a colonizer. This person who did this disgraceful act in Melbourne doesn't know what they're talking about. They don't know their Australian history for a start, how dumb they are that you'd, uh, you know, one of the great surveyors, one of the great navigators, like seriously. Um, and I tell you what, they're going mad in Melbourne about it. Now, another, I want to talk about something federally. And Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister of Australia, stood at the National Press Club today boasting about his miraculous tax uh, decision that was hatched apparently over the Christmas summer break that he announced today whereby there would be no stage three tax cuts, despite the fact that he promised during the election that there would be stage three tax cuts, that he keeps his promises, that he doesn't lie, and his word is something that people should trust. However, I'm a little bit uh, well, I'm torn both ways. Yes, he's lied. Yes, he's broken a promise. And people don't like that, especially Australians. They like you to be upfront and serious and what we call fair dinkum. But given the fact that he's spreading spreading the joy, that is spreading through the middle class, a lot of the benefits that would have gone to higher income uh, earners in stage three tax cuts, can he really lose out of this? Oh, well, politically, yeah, it's good, okay, but it's actually going to hurt the people that he thinks he's going to help. Now, this is uh, <clears throat> the problem that we have, is uh, envy, okay? Now, the first thing I do want to say about this, these ta stage two tax cuts, these were legislated when po Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister. It sounds like ancient history. Scott mm. Morrison was the Treasurer. And I said at the time, why the hell do we have to wait for three federal elections for this to be implemented? Because there's a reasonable chance Labor's going to get in. And what will they do? Of course, they'll reverse it. Now, yeah, yeah. That, that's the politics of it. And yeah. I believe you're probably right. I believe it will help Albert. But let me tell you the economic libertarian rationalist truth. The most important people to give tax cuts to are the highest income earners. Oh, you're a horrible person, John Ruddick. Oh, you only care for rich people. No, I care for poor people. What happens is if you cut taxes on high income earners, what do they do with that money? Well, yes, some of them will go for a trip to Europe and some will buy a yacht, okay? But a lot of them will invest in their business. They'll say, but hang on a second. Before you talk about yachts and going to Europe, we're talking about people who earn more than $180,000. Now, for most of our, our audience, that might sound like a hell of a lot of money. But if you are aspirational, if you have worked your backside off and you've got things successful in your business or your workplace, $180,000 is probably a fairly a fairly moderate wage. Well, particularly if you live in one of the big capital cities. Yeah. It feels very middle class. Anyway, continue. Sorry to interrupt. Well, look, what happens is, look, look, yeah, in the 1980s, we had a booming economy. It actually went on until the GFC. We had three decades of a booming economy, a few little recessions here and there, but boom, 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 across most of the world, but particularly 
Reagan and Thatcher in Britain and Bob Hawke in this country. What the first thing that the best economic reform they did is they massively cut taxes on the highest income earner. Now, what do people do with what do those high income earners do? If they're a business owner, they go and start up a new store. They might have three yeah. stores already. They go and start another one. They employ people, employ high wages. Okay. Yes. They invest in businesses and they do productive. Yes. They don't, they're not the kind of culture that the, the culture at that level is not to sit on a nest egg and put it in a 5% bank account. That is not what they do, right? But, but they're getting ahead. You know, they, 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 they're ambitious. We need people who are entrepreneurial. We, we, we need people who say, I want to become a billionaire. And because they employ thousands of people. Now, the best way to do, you know, you know, in Singapore and, and Hong Kong, Hong Kong's a bit different now, but yeah, Singapore, they're about 12.5% tax, okay, on the highest incomers, flat tax, okay? So, of course, what happens? Really smart people, really hardworking people, really commercially minded people say, well, why do I want to live in Australia? I'll go and live in Singapore and I can make a lot more money. Mm. Now, we, this country should be the low-tax continent on the whole world and we would absolutely boom. But, Chris, your point is right. And Albo's point, politically... People say, "Oh, thanks, Albo. Thanks, Albo. You know, you know, I'll have an extra ten bucks a week now, okay." And and in a democracy, you know, the problem with democracy is eventually people will keep voting for socialism slowly, slowly, slowly. Yeah. Now, if we didn't have a lot of people, a lot of people are envious towards high income earners. Mm-hmm. We should be grateful towards yes. high income earners. Yes. And I've got a couple of remarks on the chat box about this when I first mentioned it on the program today. And a lot of people are saying, well, for me, um, I'm going to get $800. Thank you very much over that tax year. That's great. $800 extra. Well, hang on a minute. Since inflation went up and things got crook and prices went up, I'm having to fork out $350 per week more than what I did three years ago. Well, eight hundred dollars doesn't go too far paying that off, John. Yeah, well, yeah, well, all, all the inflation is caused by two things: the global boiling nonsense and the COVID nonsense. Okay, which Albo cheered cheered on, and he's got no idea about economics. Uh, so, look, this is I'm you know when Hawk when Hawk cut all the income taxes for the highest income earners, you know he he cut it from about seventy percent down to about sort of forty five percent. Okay, that's a big cut for high income earners. But because it was a Labor Party guy doing it, and Bob Hawke was very popular, uh, people just you know, said, oh, that's great, Bob Hawke, thank you. Okay, But, I mean, Albo doesn't have the Hawke magnetism no. and the strength of character and the popularity. So yeah. that is the problem here. But so this is just this is just typical Labor, you know, reward, hard, punish hard workers. That That is what he's trying to do, the people that we need to keep the country going. Yeah, he couldn't sell a, a cold orange juice on a hot day, I tell you what. Um I've got to take a break for news. I do want to ask you one more thing. We'll get to that after we get to the newsroom on TNT. Today's News Talk Radio. We 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 do have some big news. What is it? Yeah, what is it? What is it now? TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. A Russian military jet carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war has been blown out of the sky over Russia, allegedly shot down by Kyiv's own air defences. New Zealand's sending a small group of soldiers to the Middle East to help the international coalition that is supposed to stop Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. And the White House has called on Congress to approve a $20 billion sale of F-16 fighter jets and modernisation kits to Turkey. 
Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's news talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. John Ruddick, I want to bring you in on a subject that's um, gaining some traction on our chat box, something completely different to what we have discussed. But we were talking about the suggestion this week in the UK that there might be conscription because the uh, the general in charge of defence issues uh, had uh, made the point that to fight Russia, they needed at least 220,000 people and they needed them now and accessible now, an almost citizen's army, which everyone construed to be conscription. And Downing Street has had to say, no, 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 we're not in support of conscription. I wonder whether they've checked with the general. But uh, Chris writes a very interesting piece here. He says, Good luck getting toxic white males to fight your greedy, unjust globalist war. It's different now. You need the people, right? The very ones you want to cull, the people whose will you ignored when they said they wanted to get rid of globalist control with Brexit, the people who you forced uncontrolled backward third world illegal immigration on, who did not who did not consent to this, the people who you tyrannically lockdown and forced vaccination on due to the fake pandemic used as a globalist tyranny beta test. Go F yourselves. He makes a very good point about toxic white males who are under the pump at the moment right across the world, but all of a sudden the general in charge of the army, the military in the UK, wouldn't mind a few able and willing toxic white males, John. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, can I just start by saying, Chris, there is nothing, there are few things more evil than a government conscripting people against their will to go and fight. Yeah. Now, if we were genuinely facing an existential threat, people are going to volunteer, aren't they? You mm. know, if, if we were being invaded by somebody, it's not like we need to conscript anybody. Okay. As so, has been the history. Yeah. So conscription isn't evil. But more importantly, uh, I cannot understand why these psychopaths, these generals, are egging on conflict with Russia. Yes. Now, they think that Russia today is the Soviet Union. Now, I know that Russia today is not Switzerland, it's not Sweden, it's not New Zealand, it's not a, it's not a lovely country, okay? I'm aware of that. Russia, poor old Russia, has had a 1,000 years of bad government, of tyrannical butchers. The, the czars were bad. The Soviets were, as Reagan said, the evil empire. Now, the people running Russia today are the people that threw over the Soviet Union. Now, it's still not great. It's I know that I know that political dissidents go missing occasionally, okay, and journalists go missing occasionally. That's not good, okay. However, uh, twenty million people got killed by Stalin, okay. They they there was an evil empire. So the long the long term trend is good. It's basically a capitalist country, okay. Yeah, there's free enterprise in there. Yeah, before the sanctions, there used to be McDonald's and KFC all across Russia. So Russia is on the right track for coming from a very low base. So what we should be doing with Russia is we should be trying to foster goodwill and free trade. That's yeah. what we should and and happy and that's what we largely have. Uh, not you know, planning wars. Not planning wars, and we and we should look at this Ukraine thing for what it truly is. It's a border dispute. It's an ethnic dispute. Okay, it's a hangover from the Soviet Union. You just happen to have in the eastern part of Ukraine, there's a little slither where the people there identify with Russia. That's the they watch, they speak Russian at home, they watch Russian TV, they follow Russian football, 
and they think that Kiev is not nice to them. Okay, yeah. now that's all debatable. So why don't we just try and get this thing sorted out and let's let that 15% on the eastern side of Russia, they've had referendums. They've had referendums which I believe are accurate. The Western media lies and says, oh, well, they were rigged. I don't believe it's true. They are Russian people. Uh, it's unfortunate they happen to find themselves in Ukraine. I feel very sorry for the Ukrainians. I want Ukraine, if, if, if we can get rid of these 15%, put them into Russia or their own little countries, whatever, then Ukraine can sort of be for the Ukrainians. And they, Ukraine's got so much potential. Mm. It, it's so wealthy in so many ways, and it's an absolute mess. Now, NATO and the military-industrial complex, they want war. That is the bottom line. They want war. They are dangerous people. Yeah, that's a great summary. That is an accurate and terrific uh, analytical su summary, put very simply. One last one. Are you really having a COVID vaccine debate with a newspaper columnist? Okay. I'm pleased you asked, Chris. Okay. So Jack the Insider, otherwise known as uh, Pete Hoisted, has been a columnist at The Australian for several years. Right. He's not just a columnist. He writes these big, long 2,000-word essays, Okay. Now, nobody in Australian media... Was... Hang on, hang on. Where does Jack come from? His oh, name's he's, Pete. He's just made it up. He just made it up. He's, he's, he's calling himself Jack the Insider, okay? It's weird. Okay. He's writing for a, such a respected newspaper. I can't think of any other opinion writer in the world who's had to invent some comical name. All right, each to their own, yep. That's right, okay. Now, uh, he, uh, <laughs> nobody in Australian media was more malicious and more demonising of people who had some degree of scepticism about all the COVID nonsense and particularly the COVID vaccine. He's an extremist. He's a shill. No, I think he's a useful idiot for the pharmaceutical industry. He's been very nasty about it. Now, he had a little swipe at me on Twitter over the weekend, and I thought, well, you know, an opinion writer at The Australian, I think, significantly outranks a humble little crossbench MLC. Hey, so hang on, he, ha he had a, a dig at you for saying what, where? Well, I just said, I, I said, look, you know, I said, look, I put out a, a lengthy tweet. I said, look, two years ago, we were in the middle of a mad vax frenzy. And I went through the details. Uh -huh. Had about 100,000 views, that little tweet. Right. I said, look, it was two years ago. You remember all that, all the crazy? Bob Carr, who wasn't a bad premier for Labor, he said, if you haven't had the vax and you get sick, you know, like, like if you have a car accident, if you get liver disease, not related to COVID, he says, hospitals should refuse your service it was garbage like that okay mm. and 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 jack the insider um um you know promoted it more than anybody so i just had i had a swipe at him on twitter yesterday and the the, the end of that swipe was pete if you ever want to come in and have a debate in one of the rooms in parliament house let me know and i said before i set it out i said to my staff i said the three percent chance he'll be foolish enough to agree well he's agreed has so, he well well he has he has agreed so we'll let you know the details, but he's, <laughs> he's actually contacted me privately today. Well, I've never met him before. Uh, and, uh, and he says he wants that, so it will be a respectful debate. Well, hang on, hang on. Will it be a respectful public debate? Can it be publicly broadcast, like, for instance, right here? Well, it's going to be hopefully in one of the rooms at Parliament House, but we'd love it if a TNT crew wanted to come along. Um so uh, all right. Well, I'll work. take that under advisement. I need to, to get logistical advice on this. Well, look, Pete said, I gave him my phone number today. And I said, Pete, give me a call. We'll sort it out. And he said, John, I will call you next week. So, okay. you know, now I hope he doesn't back out. Uh, All right. He said a lot of, you know, uh, abusive things towards me in the last 24 hours on Twitter. I'm ignoring that. I'm being a gentleman because I think it's an important debate. I want to have a respectful debate. Thank you, Jack the Insider.
Yes, people don't need to get personal, really, That's but they fine. do. Well, they, well, look, my attitude on Twitter, Twitter has got a reputation for being, uh, you know, a big brawl. I've always had the view, no, uh, make a strong point, don't hold back, but try not to attack people publicly. And I really try not to. Now, look, probably people can dig up tweets where I have, okay, but I try to be... I try to be a little bit of a Christian when it comes yes, to, yes. Uh, you know, you know, I'm not much of a Christian, but I try to be have a Christian attitude when I'm on social media. I like it. I like it. Well, we've got so much to look forward to. We've got that and your inside information about Charles as well. I cannot wait. So glad that we've tied you up in an exclusive contract at TNT. Um, I've got to run. Thank you so much for your time. Great to have you on. Good on you, Chris. See you next Thursday. See you later. Fantastic. John Ruddick, MLC, our Thursday regular on the program, the leader of the New South Wales Libertarian Party. He's got a lot to give us in the weeks ahead. Maybe we can get into that room and record that lively debate. Well, they can do it here, live. That'd even be better. Um, we will take a break. I want to come back with Shane Healy. I want to update you, though, on a cyclone that's going to hit tonight on the northern coast of Queensland in Australia. Tropical cyclone Kiralee is expected to cross the Queensland coast within hours bringing heavy rain and wind gusts of up to 165 kilometres per hour. The cyclone was updated to a Category 2 storm on Thursday morning and was predicted to cross the Queensland coast later in the night. Cyclone Kiralee is expected to make landfall between Ingham and Bowen in the vicinity of Townsville. The Queensland Premier Stephen Miles said the government had preemptively declared a disaster and requested assistance from the federal government and other states. We're prepared and ready for the worst. Those of you who are watching or listening from that part of the world, good luck. Hang in there. Do what you can to keep yourself safe. We will take a break. Come back with Shane Healy right after this on TNT. When the world's endangered animals need help most, when their lives are at greatest risk, when they would otherwise be lost, the International Fund for Animal Welfare is there, taking action to rescue the animals we love, to protect them and their threatened natural habitats. But the danger to animals the world over is growing, and the need for your help has never been more urgent. On land, you'll help stop poachers from threatening and killing elephants and big cats for the illegal wildlife trade. In the oceans, you'll help rescue dolphins, whales, and seals from deadly hazards. And you'll help rescue, rehabilitate, and release vulnerable animals when disasters strike. Here at home and around the world, we can't do this work without you. See how you can help animals and people thrive together at joinifall.org. You ever heard of a polyp? Sounds like a rare species of toad. Actually, it's a lump that grows inside me, your bowel. Look, I'm pretty sure if you had a strange lump growing on your forehead, you might get it looked at, right? But when they're growing inside me, nothing, nada. And the polyps I get can lead to Australia's second deadliest cancer. So, until there's a way to make them grow on your face, it's up to you to get me looked at. Got it? Where the story goes, we follow. Chris Smith on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. A lot of pro-John Ruddick comments on the chat box. We thank you for that. Well, this week, Israel reported that 24 of its soldiers were killed in the Gaza Strip, one of the single worst days for Israeli forces since launching its campaign 
uh, to eliminate Hamas. There are many military strategists who are now freely saying that Israel is losing this war. Let's bring in former Australian Defence Force Intelligence Officer and former private military contractor in the Middle East, Shane Healy. Shane trained the Iraqi Special Operations Police who fought in the Second Battle of Fallujah. He's been deployed twice to Afghanistan, where he provided insurgent threat assessments. In Australia, he was part of the Tactical Assault Group, East and West, where he was involved in several real-time terrorist incidents. Shane Healy, welcome back to TNT. Afternoon, Chris. How are you going? I'm very, very well. We could probably speak for a half an hour now. We don't have that time, but let's get to the key issues. 24 soldiers killed. How does something like that happen to the might of the IDF against what we think is a depleted terrorist force? Well, I was part of the might of the US Army, and it happened to us many times in Fallujah. So these guys were planning charges in Gaza in order to blow up some buildings when a Hamas fighter saw that and fired an RPG at that demolition. Uh Uh, Some of the statistics are saying there were more than that number and a lot more wounded. So... You know, in any counterinsurgency uh, operation, the enemy gets a say in what goes on in the battle space. So this wasn't a um, an attack that the Israeli army went in and then got there and got beaten. This was an opportunistic uh, attack by Hamas. Okay. Now, 24 nations are now waging a counterattack against the Yemeni Houthis. Who are the Houthis and do they, do they need to be wiped out? They don't sound like as if they're stopping for anyone. So the Houthis are a tribe. They've been around uh, as a tribal group for hundreds of years. Uh, Houthi actually means, or or their tribal is, answer Allah, so supporters of God. So it's very idolistic towards Allah and their faith. Um, Hassan al-Houthi was their original leader. He was killed in a strike in 2004. When you say, do they need to be wiped out, what what does that mean? Is it militarily? Do we need to get well, rid of it? It sounds like as if 24 nations of the world think that they do because they keep striking them. Well, I think militarily, 100%, and we've been discussing this for a number of weeks. I think that, and we're seeing now with these strikes, their, their military is being, being decimated or their offensive capabilities, and I am all for that. Let's continue to hit their ammunition dumps. Let's continue to hit their naval, their assets. But as a, as a tribe, as a people, I don't think that we can wipe that out. Okay, why are they unstoppable? Is it all about, you know, this kind of extremist um, adherence to the Koran and their God that they think that no matter what kind of firepower they face, they have to continue to fight the good fight? Well, it's the same kind of that ideology that Hamas, that ISIS, that Al-Qaeda have. That um, It's an ideology, you know, we... Didn't understand that in, in Afghanistan with the Taliban. You're fighting an ideology. It's no different to the Crusades that were um, Christian warriors. So you can't, you can defeat uh, militarily an enemy, but to defeat their faith, and in this is a lot of the work that I do um, on the home front, but that is their belief structure. Their, their ideology is you're either with us or against us. You are kuffar. And to anyone who is not part of their... Um, ideology, their belief structure, they're the enemy, they're kuffar. Mm. Now, the families of hostages, um, they seem to be at their wit's end, um, you know, no doubt out of their head with worry and frustration. What's happened 
to the hostages? Because certainly in terms of coverage, there seems to be a lot less about the people we should be concerned about, which are the hostages. So I think a key point there is coverage. There is no uh, doubt that Shin Benet, your American military intelligence, they are still very, very active looking at that counterpiece. And, for, and having been part of them in the past, you want to get under the detection threshold for your capability. So they kind of want uh, their reaction to go unnoticed because while the the um, Hamas or whoever are looking in another direction, that's when those counter-terrorism uh, elite units will strike and look for them. I get the families' um, feelings. If, if my family member was a hostage, I'd move heaven and earth to get my family members back. Yeah, yeah. I completely understand and get that. Um, but at a strategic and at a tactical level, no one's forgotten about the hostages. Yeah. How many would still be alive, do you estimate? Uh, like that's how long's a bit of string. Um, yeah, sure. Without being underground, they're not going to give you even numbers. You know, one of the first things you do in any form of hostage negotiation is look for proof of lives. The intelligence apparatus looking for that, uh, especially in the human intelligence space that would have sources, they would be working that. So the fact that there's still rhetoric of there being hostages is, to me, as someone who worked in that space, the hostages are alive. There are Because the moment that, it, that they're all dead, even the, the thought of they're dead, what leverage does Hamas have? And at the moment, that's a, a lot of what is getting them international help is that we've got hostages. What are your thoughts on some of these former military uh, officials or whatever they call themselves, experts, um, sort of saying that Israel is losing this war. I don't know how you can be that accurate. Um, what are they basing it on? Basing it on coverage? Well, coverage is never even-handed. Coverage is never accurate um, because people aren't, you know, down there in the trenches, in the front lines, determining who's being killed and who's not. Um, do you think Israel could be losing the war? We know they're losing the PR war. Yeah. So that was going to be my first question. What war are we talking about? And the fact that there's still a war going on, you know, like uh, like in Ukraine, Russia was supposed to win that in a week. And that's two years in. So those experts that are saying that uh, Israel are losing the war is simply because Israel is still fighting a war against a so-called you know, insurgency or a terrorist organisation that were in a fixed year location. You know, two weeks ago, we spoke on this program about Israeli Navy SEALs had encircled Hamas. Well, what happened there? Yeah. So um, I think those those experts, and I've been reading those reports, um, are basically saying the fact that Hamas are still in the fight uh, is giving them credence to Israel aren't winning. But what does winning look like? Um, I think he's, well, we've discussed this. Israel have been losing the information operation war for weeks. Yeah, um, very much so. Um, we now know who these missing Navy SEALs are, Shane. Uh, Navy Special Warfare Operator, First Class Christoph, uh, Christopher Chambers, age 37, and Navy Special Warfare Operator, Second Class Nathan Gage Ingram, 27. They're only young. Heroes they are, Shane, aren't they? 1,000%. And I, I knew that last week and wasn't allowed to, to discuss that for a number of reasons, obviously family members and, and, um, and you know, I, I knew uh, 
uh, Chris, uh, I'd worked with Chris before and, you know, heroes doesn't uh, even sum up, you know, when you give your life to save a brother, you know, Chris went in after Nathan when Nathan fell. Um, that's what these men and women in the ADF, the US military, the Israeli military, anyone out there that's putting their lives on the line, that, that that's what they do and that's what you sign up for. You know, we speak about that brotherhood that, you know, you're not doing it because a politician sends you there. You're not doing it because of some political plan. You're doing it because of the people around you, that brotherhood and that love, and, and that's no greater display than, than putting your life in harm's way to, to try to save one of your brothers. I haven't heard too much coverage of their feats and their heroics and what actually occurred. The media has kept away from this story. Why? So there's a couple of reasons. One is operational security based around um, what they were doing. There are some notification issues, which is also why I couldn't discuss what I knew exactly last week. Um, they did put out the pictures of the find on the Iranian body for a member pretty quick. But, you know, we've got the New Hampshire primary going on in America at the moment. We've got cost of living in Australia. We've got other things that they don't want to shine a light on um, a negativity. I am very angry and upset that it's not getting more coverage on CNN and stuff in America. Um, you know, they're heroes and, and and they should be treated as such. Two quick things. What's North Korea up to? Uh, two eminent analysts dropped a bombshell this week stating their belief that Kim Jong-un is preparing for war. So I think those analysts started their job last week because Kim Jong-un's been doing and his family's been doing this for years. Uh, this usually happens in one or two cases. One, North Korea is starving and they need some international money. So they start firing rockets near Japan and, and they start talking about war and nuclear bombs and America goes, look, here's some money, uh, feed your people, stop doing that. It's been a, uh, a bit of a game that they've played for a number of years and they strategically actually don't have the capability to do what they want to do. Like They can't fire strategic missiles into Japan like they want to. If they legitimately tried going across the uh, DMZ or doing something, um, you know, we think the Houthis are copying a bit of a pounding. You know, they might have a lot of wet, a lot of um, soldiers in North Korea, but as far as the technology and it, it, it wouldn't go that well in China, who supported them. And the only reason they actually uh, got the Korean War to standstill was because the Chinese army came in on their side, and that's not going to happen this time. Okay. One last one, but uh, no more less important, uh, something closer to home. Terrorists who are released from Australian prisons, Abdul Ben Bricker, a man who planned the bombing of several iconic Australian venues, is now out. Um, we've spoken about Ben Bricker before on the program, and you say that he's a very minimal threat, if any threat. Um, you are actually hired because of your experience and background to assess the risk of releasing terrorists or former terrorists or former extremists. And you've been doing that this week, I hear. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I got coined a new term, forensic terrorism assessor. So I, I go in and uh, conduct interviews and it's a platform called the Violent Extreme Risk Assessment Tool. Uh, my expertise is the ideology. Do they still believe that fundamentalist Islamic ideology uh, of Al-Qaeda, of the Islamic State, of uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, 
you know, which is what got them to that that terrorism place to want to attack Australians to start with. Um, other experts also come in. It, it's a fused product, psychologists, psychiatrists. Um, but, you know, I look at what books are they reading? Are they Wahhabist, so the Salafis, which is that uh, what we spoke about, the Houthis, you know, the Kuffar. Enemy, everyone's an enemy. You're either part of us or against us. Um, so, yeah, so, I, yes, I've been doing that, and that's kind of my role uh, ever since I left defence uh, with uh, youth justice and, and the Department of Justice and stuff. So tell me this. These psychiatrists and psychologists that the court brings in to do a report on these terrorists, are they trained? Do they have a, a qualification or a background in determining what constitutes a risk assessment when it comes to terrorism? No, not not a lot of them. And so uh, I'll give you an example in a public forum. There was uh, a case a few years ago for um, Mehmet Bieber, and the judge actually said to the AFP's uh, psychiatrist, you may have done a lot of sex offenders and you may have done a lot of other risky violent behaviour, just because you've done a two-week terrorism course does not make you a terrorism expert. Mm. Um, there's been others uh, more recently that, yes, that's great, they've done a 1,000 assessments of a sex offender, but they wouldn't know a terrorism if they were sitting next to one. And this is a big part of the problem because the Australian Federal Police and, and other agencies basically recruit them and says, and this is on the record, you can read this in, in court transcripts, but it basically this is what we want you to say. It's only been recently that when you get an expert, someone like either myself, especially Peter Lowe, who is the global expert, she did the Philip Galee um, uh, assessment and some others, that now the defence has got a few experts that actually come out. Now, that doesn't mean like... Um, so, it's, so it's like a civil trial. You actually hire the expert that you prefer to argue your side of the, the case on bail. 100%. And the judge then looks and quite now some of the magistrates are extremely knowledgeable and they'll stop and say, you know, um, so, okay, let's look at the actual terrorism risk rating of reoffending. That's great. This And, and they'll ask their own questions. It's quite, um, it is quite a process. The judges are getting very well educated. Um, I do a presentation for an organisation called Legal Wise where I pull apart um, the terrorism ideology and the understanding of what is that violent extremist ideology. So, so magistrates, solicitors, um, and uh, more lawyers can become under because what they wouldn't know. They would just get you're representing, uh, you know, terrorism related offender X. They've been charged with this. Off you go, and, and they just oh, and then the crown would say, well, they're guilty because of X, and they go, let's take a plea. That's changing now because there's more education right. um, to the defence. Well, that's reassuring. But, um, you know, if I, like like I've said before, if I did an assessment and I thought someone was still a risk to the Australian community, they, they're not getting out of jail. Like, yeah. you know, my, my views from when I was a soldier in Afghanistan and Iraq have not changed to this day. If I think someone is going to hurt an Australian citizen, then... The necessary steps would need to be taken to keep Australian citizens safe. I like to hear that. I've got to go. I'm coming up to news uh, once again. We'll catch up next week and get our um, our listeners and our viewers an update on what's going on in the Middle East from uh, your view. Thank you so much for your insight again. Anytime, Chris. Have a great week, mate. Good on you, the former IADF. Uh,
Intelligence Officer Shane Healy. Always great to have him on the program. I've got a skiaddle. Uh, David McBride is on the program, filling in for Dean Mackin coming up next. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Australia Day. Yes, I'll be here. Make sure you come and join us and a little bit of a flavour in that last hour for our National Day. This is Chris Smith on TNT.